0: All right, that's enough being nice to each other. Knock it off. (laughs) What a great start to this morning. What a great day. Thanks. You can be seated. Thank you. Before we... Hear some from the Word today. Let's do take a moment or two and pray. You can be seated. Thanks. These guys over here. I don't know what we're going to have to do. Scare them down somehow. You're having too much fun. I love that. But let's uh, let's think about because since our pastor is headed to Mozambique, there are a number of things going on all over the planet that are very important. You have some people in your mind right now that uh, maybe the rest of us don't know about that you could pray. I know. Tim and Janet Roberts will be praying for the Tarahumara Indians that they left and love. And uh, many of you will be thinking of people all over. While I pray right now for our pastor, but let's pray for people around the world and God's work in their hearts and lives. Let's do that right now. Lord, I do uh, stand before you. Thank you that Jim has this opportunity to go and to bring his knowledge into Mozambique for a couple of weeks and to that training for pastors, and I pray that you'll fill him, uh, give him the right things to say, the things to prioritize, that's always the hard part, and uh, help him to be able to communicate well, to um, fill up the uh, cup of those who are there, learning to pastor, learning to lead and to shepherd. And we think of a number of other of our missionaries that are represented from Dillon Community Church, those in France and in... um, Central America and other places in Europe and in places here in the United States on different battle fronts, if we want to call it that, but are certainly places where we want to bring the light of the gospel to those individuals and to those circumstances. We thank you for those uh, commitments that they've made, the development that you have done. We ask that your spirit move and give us wisdom, God, as we move into our future We don't know what this will look like, uh, the motion of the gospel around the world, but we ask you for direction, we ask you for clarity, for courage, and for strength, and we pray that today in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So let's uh, look at some things in the book of Psalms. We have been in a series all summer in Psalms, which is perfect for this location in which we find ourselves. As assistant pastor, I'm also the worship director at Dillon Community Church. How many of you are worship directors or part of your worship teams in your churches back at home? How many of you? Anybody? Wow, I'm all alone. No, there's a couple of us. There's like four of us. So the, We probably drive a lot of you people crazy, don't we? Worship leaders. We do these things where we stand up here and we kind of ask you to do things, and we, we go into things. Actually, there's a the famous joke, What's the uh, what do you call 20 worship leaders in the bottom of Lake Dillon? A good start. Um, now, actually, that's not, not the truth, but we're, we're trying because what the goal is, how do we set up a culture of worship? And as a worship pastor, I'm forever asking, what is worship really all about? Is it about singing songs? Obviously, those formats give us amazing opportunities to share with the poets, to share with the greats down through the centuries, to say to God what sometimes we can't articulate in our own hearts, but others have done that for us. And set to music, it's got that sense of emotion and spirit that's in it. It's awesome. But that can't be the only thing, right? There's got to be other things it has got to be other ways. Is it lighting candles? Is it saying specific prayers? Are there specific ways that we can worship God? I encourage you to continue to ask that question. But today from Psalm 104, we're going to learn some things. If you have a Bible with you or you've got one on your phone or your iPad, like I do, we can uh, find out that there's some things that we have that are in common. Now, let me see if I can find this. That's important. We're going to go to Psalm 104. Let's turn there. We're going to read some things. Here's what I'd like you to do before we read Psalm 104. If you want to take some notes, this might be a way for you to do it that would be a little different from what you're used to. And that is, we're going to list some W's, W for worship, that maybe will help us see some things in Psalm 104 that you hadn't seen before. Kids, you can definitely see these words and maybe write down the verse number. Next to these words, here's the words I want you to write down. First of all, worship. Second of all, wind and water. Wind and water. Listen for that. You will not believe how much is in these passages about water. Third, wild things. Things that are wild. Fourth, work. Fifth, wisdom. Wisdom. 6th well-being. And the last one, probably your favorite, is wicked. Ooh, that, that, You're like, eh, what does that have to do with worship? Fascinatingly, I think actually we're going to find out some things here in this psalm, Psalm 104, that will give us some insights. Uh, so let's again flip over here. I'm going to flip to Psalm 104, and we're going to read through this top to bottom and to hear from God. This is after Psalm 103, that's simple math. Even I can do that math, and uh, Psalm 103 is definitely declared as being a Psalm of David and identified as such, and it's much more introspective. It talks a lot about uh, spiritual relationship with God and forgiveness and compassion and mercy and those type of things. This is a very circumstantial psalm. It's an outside of an experience, and I thought in this setting, it's perfect for us to consider This kind of a posture, and yet this author must have read David's psalms because he echoes a lot of what's going on there. So let's read in verse 1, Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, yours may say, praise the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. It's initial posture. You're clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds. His ministers flaming fire. Verse 5. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. Same images in those early verse there. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled, at the sound of your thunder they took to flight, and the mountains rose and the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth, a reference to the great flood, right? Verse 10, you make springs gush forth in the valleys, they flow between the hills, they give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains, and the earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. Can you see this? How many times have mountains been mentioned so far? Verse 14, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock, plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man. Did you know that verse was in the Bible? <laughs> and bread to strengthen man's heart, and oil to make his face shine. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them, the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees, which probably seems unlikely, doesn't it? The high mountains are for the wild goats, and the rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. How many of you have seen the goats and the badgers or the marmots or the pikas in these valleys? Right here, a number of you. He made the moon to mark the seasons, verse 19. The sun knows its time for its setting. You make darkness and it is night. When all the beasts of the forest creep about and the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. And when the sun rises, verse 22, they steal away and they lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work until his labor until the evening. Isn't that interesting? Includes that in that discussion of the cycles. Verse 24, O oh Lord, how manifold are your works. This is almost like a start over, like chapter 2. In your wisdom, you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan which you formed to play in it. Leviathan often considered the great sea monster in their thinking. These all look to you, verse 27, to give them their food in due season. And when you give it to them, they gather it up. And when you open your hand, they're filled with good things. And when you hide your face, they're dismayed. And when you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. Who's held responsible for both ends of that spectrum? Verse 30, when you send forth your spirit, they're created and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. Clearly a reference to Moses getting the, the Ten Commandments. Verse 33, I'll sing to the Lord as long as I live. I'll sing praise to my God while I have been. May my meditation be pleasing to him for I rejoice in the Lord. And let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Now, I don't know what you got out of that. I hope you were able to catch the times that these words worship, wind, water, wild, work, wisdom, our well being, and wicked came up in this passage. There's a lot going on here. But surely this context will give us some things that we can consider. Let's look at worship first. Worship is mentioned at the very beginning and at the very end. That's called officially an inclusio, when you put the same phrase at the top and the bottom. They were trying to think of ways to make it memorable, right, so people could memorize it. And by doing that at the top and the bottom, it kind of hooks and captures, but it also gives a summary statement of sorts. And the bottom line is, hallelujah, praise the Lord, Yahweh, where that came from. This is the first time this phrase is used in the Psalms, which is very interesting that that comes up. And he puts this in place and he says, this is what we are doing in all that we're about to talk about and discuss in this scenario. Very interesting. Now, also remember this. The Jews, what was their history prior to Moses bringing them out? Where were they located? They were located in Egypt, right? For four centuries. As what kind of people? Were they high and considered valuable and the greatest people in their culture and society? No, they were slaves. So remember, a lot of what was going on in the beginning, always read the law as a recalibration of a slave people that had been Egyptian for 400 years. We always need to read it that way. And they keep going back. God keeps going back. He keeps reminding them, I brought you up out of Egypt. I'm the one who did that for you, who changed your identity as a people. That was my role. So actually, interestingly, this psalm has a number of borrowed phrases from a hymn written maybe in the culture of Akhenaten when they were worshiping Aten, the sun disk, as their monotheistic god. Very many of these phrases are coming out of here. Now, you may say, some would say this, they would say, oh, so the the Hebrews just borrowed all of that and it doesn't have anything different or anything unique about it, it's just borrowed religion. Actually, it's not even remotely the case because there's a significant posture that this writer uses that's completely different from the Akhenaten hymn. The Akhenaten hymn says, God was the victor at all kinds of scenarios. So God needed to come in, Aten, needed to come in and push down everybody else who was bringing chaos in, dark, fear, struggles, difficulty, and God had to victoriously win his way in and defend for us. This God, the God of the Hebrews, is not one who just says, I'm the victor, I'm the big, powerful God. This is a God who says, I have a plan. I have a plan. We're going to talk a little more about that in just a moment. Winds and waters, all those references, I'm sure you heard them. Uh, Since the Enlightenment, since the, the beginning of kind of the mindset that people have had, in which we find ourselves now, there have been kind of three postures towards God. One is a sense of naturalism. That's what most of us recognize and hear and see in the media, in schools, and different things around us right now. Naturalism says all of this happened. It made good sense. It all happened because of good development and systems that were in place, and it did not need a God at all. Do you agree with that posture? Some of you may. Some of you may say, we don't need God. God is kind of on the outside looking in, or he's just some kind of a crutch or something that we need because we, there wasn't enough to give reason for what happened around us. Actually, when you think about it, to remove God absolutely as a no question fixed fact seems a little unlikely. Doesn't it seem unlikely Doesn't doesn't looking around you cause you to say, wow, there's something else going on here. Something brought order to this system. Something works this. The second posture that a lot of people have taken, other than naturalism, is naturism. We've tried to say, in effect, pantheism. God is in all of this, and he's around us all over the place, and all we have to do is worship this, and we worship God. Does that seem like the logical thing? Actually, that could be possible. That was kind of what they were doing when they were worshiping that big powerhouse up there. The truth is, God presents himself to be far more personal and relational than that. He has said, look, I've put all this here, but all of this is, is all of these are calling cards. The color of that grass, the way that water works, the fact that it when it freezes, Ice floats on top so it doesn't kill everything underneath. The fact, as this author caught on, the, the sea monsters play in there. We don't even know how big they are, where they come from, where do they go. The fact that ships float on there. How many of you have seen an actual huge like cruise ship sitting in a harbor somewhere? How many of you have seen that with your own eyes? Does that seem reasonable to you, <laughs> that that huge hunk of steel actually sits on top of that water? Well, we know scientifically how it works. But that function is amazing. The way the winds work, the way life and death cycles. We could worship nature by itself, but actually God gives us a better option. And that's what the Jews walked away from Egypt to encounter, was a real, one, true, living God. The third option is natalism, which is basically God is inside of us. We need to go find him in here somewhere. He's in us waiting. There's a spark of divinity, and we just go in and kind of breathe life into that. Actually, does this do that for us? Not really. All three of those have some aspects. In fact, a lot of aspects of some truth and some facts, but they all fall short. They're all deficient of what God intended, which was, I am different from you. There's God and everything else. And we are part of everything else, just like everything that you're looking at right now around us. That actually is what God presented as an opportunity for those Jewish people. It's pretty amazing. Another thing that we look and we see wild things. We see the fear. We see that fear is there, but fear goes into faith for this writer. Fear is not the final story. The lions creep around at night and they're looking for their prey, but that makes sense to him. There's a cycle. The, the Leviathans are in the ocean, but that is God's business. He takes care of them. He's got all of this in mind. The concept of wisdom is actually an unbelievable scenario because it takes God past. This is where it all changes from every other religious system around them. And it says there was a great mind who is also loving and compassionate and caring and wanted to connect with us through this. That great mind loves us, cares for us, even when we can't tell. Wisdom, a sense of there is something at stake in all of this. All of this continues. The works, we hear about God's works. We see that man is given work to do. Do you view your work as just a curse? As a problem? Where do we get the idea that everybody needs to work to a certain age and then quit? Where do we get that idea? Do you know how few people in all of human history have gotten to do that? And somehow we feel entitled to that, like... If I could just get out of my job, you know what? There's a sense in this psalm that is man goes and he works and he's part of the cycle. In fact, that's how this works. He's part of it, part of the deal. We keep hearing things and finally we hear about the wicked. (laughs) And you say, man, I don't really like talking about the wicked. I don't blame you, neither do I. He doesn't talk much about the wicked. Right, He just spends a couple of seconds. But listen to this. That's kind of an unusual thing about it. He doesn't say, well, these wicked ones are out wreaking havoc and causing trouble and just making life miserable for others around them. That's not their problem in this psalm. In this psalm, the offense that makes them wicked is they forgot to give credit where credit is due. I'm going to ask you this question. What's the difference between a person who loves nature, who comes to a place like Summit County, who wants to be out on this lake or or climbing those trails or pedal a bike around this amazing place or sail or do whatever, and they come and they say, I want to worship God just by being here in the mountains. Doesn't that sound plausible? It kind of sounds plausible. What's the difference between that person and a worshiper who is here doing exactly the same activities? The difference is credit. The difference is where does the person put their focus as they enjoy? The difference is when they see the beauty, the distinction, the fact that there's still snow sitting up there. There will be snow all year round along that ridge up there. How does that happen, right? Well, we can figure out scientifically. But the beauty of that, the contrast of the blue against the green, the birds flying over, and you can hear. When those big birds of prey fly over, you can hear the wind, right? What's the difference between a person that just naturally wants to enjoy that and say, I'm worshiping God, and a person who says, I am a worshiper, is when they see behind the curtain, You see behind this. This is not the end of the story. This is not the final goal of God, is to get you to see that mountain and go, nice work, God. It is to say, what is God, wait, who is behind that? What does he have in mind for me? Does that, whatever a God that would create something like this, could that God possibly care for me? What what can I do to communicate that that God is actually worth living and dying for? That's the difference. And I encourage you, as you're walking around Summit County, consider that. Consider that. Are you just enjoying and experiencing, or are you worshiping the God behind what's going on? Now, interestingly, when we get to the New Testament, we're almost done. We get to the New Testament, we say, well, maybe they had a whole new plan of worship. The truth is, the worshipers in the New Testament used exactly what the Hebrews had used as far as their culture, their words, their language, their values, their understanding. Their worship was the same worship as the Hebrews' worship, but often the Hebrews had to bring the the constant focus of those different sacrifices and say to God, We're bringing these sacrifices to you to make you happy. We're bringing these sacrifices to you to make you happy, to earn or to somehow appease for, you know, I mean, there was we don't know exactly what they were thinking, but we know they had a sense of we've got to keep doing this and keep doing this. And Jesus said, we don't need those same kind of sacrifices anymore. In Romans, Paul writes about it. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Doesn't that sound like a psalm? (laughs) Actually, he's quoting from the Old Testament. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from God and through God and for God are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And the next verse says... Therefore, what I want you to do, I urge you, brothers and sisters, I spur you on to offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This was not a break in Paul's thinking. Paul's thinking was, we have been worshiping, we can say these things and these truths are true, just like the writer of Psalm 104 And our response now is, Jesus sacrificed himself for us, we sacrifice ourselves for him. We offer ourselves to him. In that posture, in that mindset, in that goal, in that experience, you can genuinely go right out onto the lake and be in a boat that's right next to another person in a different boat and have a completely different experience of worship. It can be completely different. But because you can say, God, you gave yourself, so we don't have to keep sacrificing, trying to make you happy, wondering what your plan is. We can trust you. You have given final mercy. You have given final forgiveness through Christ. We know that that's true. You have given, as we sang a little bit ago, the Holy Spirit, who affects the atmosphere for us. So we give ourselves back to you. That is, as Paul said, your reasonable, logical, spiritual worship. That's what it is. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for these beautiful psalms that set us up in mindset to where we could consider. Thank you for the science as the the writer heard of the the movement of the plates and the planet and the waters and, and how the cycles worked and everything else, they were no fools. They experienced you. They heard you. They saw you. They witnessed what you were about. They trusted your wisdom, but they also had to be in that cycle of constantly sacrificing, sacrificing under the law. Thank you, Lord, for the freedom that we've had for 2,000 years that we can now sacrifice ourselves to you. We give our lives to you. That is our worship. We can do that here in Dillon. We can do it at home in our churches, wherever we're from. We can do that in our jobs. We can do that in our families. We can do that in every context. So God, help us, encourage us, challenge us today to offer ourselves to you as living sacrifice that